Next week, next Monday, we will be showing a final cut of the videotape that we've recently commissioned on the School of Library service, as well as various other videotapes that we have acquired since the last time we did a festival of videotapes on bookish subjects. We will certainly be showing the Libra Prim videotapes on bookbinding, which are glorious and awful. But as I pointed out last time, there's a limited number of opportunities for seeing important old books balanced on rocks and in the trees and forests. So though I don't know if you're going to want to see this film often, I think you're probably going to want to see it once. We will also be showing uh, some good stuff as well. That's next Monday uh, from about 5 o'clock on, from about 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock with refreshments in 5.02 during. On Monday, the 14th of December, will be the third annual Saul Malkin Lecture. This year, Marjorie Wynn, for many years, Edwin J. Beinecke, research librarian at Yale University, speaking on her half-century of experience in the Yale University Library. That will be at 6 o'clock on Monday the 14th, and that will be a very grand occasion. As always, we hope to see you all there. On another front, on another centennial front, I am happy to say that the exhibition, the Dewey Years at Columbia, 1883-1887, was installed in Lowe Library this afternoon so that if you show up early next week or the week after next, that is to say by 5 o'clock, you may want to wander over to the rotunda and see what is almost certainly going to be the only exhibition for the next 50 years at least on the subject of Melville Dewey and the founding of the School of Library Service. There is a catalog of this exhibition, and by God, it is back from the printers, and it is the 30th of November, and the show opens formally on the 10th of December, and I am lost in surprise. This is a file copy, and it will be available in the press room for you to take a look at afterwards if you're interested. Our speaker this evening, Sue Allen, is an old friend to the School of Library Service. She's lectured from this platform under uh, many hats, many times, and it's always a particular pleasure to have her here as one of the few genuinely trustworthy lectures in this series. Sue Ellen. Thank you, Terry. Oh, all right. What about this? All right, uh, we could have the lights. Um, now, let's see, I press these. Uh, oh, sorry, I did the wrong one now. Uh, okay, now how do I go back? Let's zero-wise them again. Are you on zero? Yes. Okay. Or whatever. Yes, I'll try to. Okay, now I'm just going to hit it. 
they don't go on. I guess you don't do them at the same time. You don't do them at the same time. Oh, the is that it? All right, sorry. Um, the influence of Japanese art on American books occurred mostly from the mid-1880s into the 90s. It brought a dash of excitement and exoticism, a new way of looking at things, new motifs, butterflies, bamboo shoots, repeating patterns, the diagonal line. Then, like other fads, it went away. Now, what was happening in Japan? The books I'm going to talk about were being published at this very time in Tokyo by a Japanese publisher. They are a series of Japanese fairy tales translated into English, illustrated by Japanese artists, and aimed at the English-speaking market. They are small books, four by six inches, and they are on paper that has been creped. These little books were one man's response to the most extraordinary period in Japanese-Anglo relations. The years when Japan was closed to the rest of the world are called the isolation. In 1867, a bloodless revolution occurred. Japan changed its own government, welcomed in the West. The isolation was forever ended. Japan wanted what the West had, guns, science, technology, the language of their making. Public universities were set up, welcoming in English-speaking professors. The Japanese citizen who wanted to make it in the new Japan must learn English. Traditional arts suffered. Many artists were thrown out of work. Those who did succeed addressed their skills to new markets in the West. For a period of 10 years and more, there was a kind of cultural revolution in Japan comparable to that of China in the 1950s. Western visitors flocked to Japan, many with great aesthetic sensibilities. John Lafarge, Henry Adams, Mrs. Jack Gardner. It was the height of materialism, the Gilded Age in the West and this sheltered feudal country, rich in art, made a deep appeal. They met each other in Japanese courtyards, their carriages loaded with curios. Some of the great Western museum collections were built up at this time. Morse, director of the Salem Peabody Museum, traveled all over Japan buying historic pottery. One day he was loading a ship with 2,900 fine pots. Wait, he said, is this right? Is not Japan bleeding to death from a hidden wound? He stopped and consulted a Japanese friend. No one was interested. The pottery is today in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. This is the setting in which these books began to be published. This is the publisher, Takajiro Hasegawa. Yes, I'd love it. Oh, that's wonderful. Great, thank you. Yeah. This is the publisher, Takajiro Hasegawa. 
He began to publish the fairy tales in 1885, when he was 35 years old. He was a boy of 16 when the old Japan was finished, old enough to be imbued with its values, young enough to succeed in the new Japan. He styled himself art, printer, and publisher. He lived from 1850 to 1936. He had contacts with English-speaking people of importance. He wears the dress of a prosperous merchant. This is Basil Hall Chamberlain, an important contact of Hasegawa's. He translated five of the stories and recommended other translators. He was an Englishman from a distinguished family of writers and travelers. Frail health sent him to Japan, where he lived as an expatriate from before the days of New Japan. He was an outstanding linguist, taught as professor of Japanese literature at the University of Tokyo, and wrote a number of books. This is Lafcadio Hearn, who translated five of the fairy tales. He turns his face from the camera because he had the use of only one eye. Of Irish and Greek birth, he had a difficult childhood and youth, but he began to establish himself in America as a writer. He had exceptional powers in description, the precise use of words, and he was drawn to the eerie and the macabre. In 1891, he went to Japan. In Japan, he found himself. He made a living by teaching and his writings, married a Japanese wife, had a family, took a Japanese name. He wrote 11 books about Japan, published in America. He has been called the foremost interpreter of Japan to the Western world. His stature as a writer gave him a bibliographer, Percival Perkins, and a place in the bibliography of American literature. This source and his many published letters provide a major part of what we know about the making of the fairy tale books. Hearn and Chamberlain had known each other and corresponded ever since Hearn came to Japan. This is another picture of uh, Hearn. Chamberlain helped place him in jobs, listened to his views and problems, held him in high esteem as a writer. In 1894, Hearn, ever in need of money and now with a year-old son of his own, wrote to Chamberlain, what do you think about the idea of getting up a new Japanese fairy tale series? I have quite a number of tales splendidly adapted to weird illustrations. Is there money in such a thing? There was $20 per story in it. Chamberlain put him in touch with Hasegawa, and Hearn provided him with five translated fairy tales. Hearn's wife tells of going out into the city searching in market stalls and bookstores for such stories. The whole family was involved. Hearn's son describes his father trying out alternate endings for stories, watching the children's faces for reactions. In some of his ghost stories, his skill with words would be too much. The wife was emotionally overcome. We will speak of other matters, Hearn would say. 
So Hasegawa, because of the situation in Japan, had a captive workforce of editors and translators of the highest qualifications, and he had the wit and ability to use them. I met Hasegawa and liked him, Hearn told Chamberlain. And although he's barely met him, Hasegawa bombards Hearn with questions which he answers pretty good-naturedly about the book's appearance and editorial style. Would it be better to say fairy tale second series or a second series of fairy tales and so on? Where did Hasegawa get the idea for the fairy books? In 1871, an important book was published in England called Folk Tales of Japan. It's still in print. It was written by Lord Reedsdale, or A.G. Mitford, the father of Nancy and Jessica Mitford. Mitford was a career diplomat in Japan at and beyond the time of the Bloodless Revolution. Deeply impressed, he wrote, the feudal system has passed away like a dissolving view before the eyes of those who have lived in Japan during the last few years. He was a linguist by hobby. He saw the great interest developing in the West as to the Japanese character. Neither the shallow traveler's books that were coming out nor the official Japanese records satisfied him. He believed that the heart and mind of the Japanese could be best plumbed by collecting and translating their traditional stories. There are many kinds of stories in his book, only a few of them fairy tales. He regretted that he could only find nine fairy tales and believed that his were the first English translations of them. Six out of Mitford's nine stories were the first stories Hasegawa published. It seems almost certain that Mitford's book gave him the idea Mitford had a few black and white woodcuts cut in Japan for his book, <clears throat> and for his first story, Hasegawa's color picture follows Mitford's closely. This is Momotaro, the boy born from a peach. In each picture, the old woman rakes in the magic peach from the stream with her wash tub beside her. In his effort to make his fairy tale books look both Japanese and English, Hasegawa used the Japanese framed page tradition. To Western eyes, it is decorative yet somewhat bothering. Your eye has to jump the gutter and put the two pieces of picture together. This framed page was used in the majority of Japanese books through the 19th century. Hasegawa provided a double rule frame with rounded corners, rather similar to the one on the right. For a children's book in the 1880s, English readers were accustomed to an opening like this, and Hasegawa took care to imitate it closely. These are his books. He had available more than 18 of the decorated typefaces, along with floral initials and little braces. The words of his stories all began in Victorian fashion, once upon a time or many years ago. Now we'll follow the physical creation of Hasegawa's books. 
the chain of craftsmen who produced them. Only such a handmade paper as Japan was famous for, with its toughness and flexibility, could have withstood the manipulations his pages must go through. Strong, soft, fibrous, off-white in color, semi-transparent, thin so as not to wear out the woodcuts, it was printed on one side. Small sheets were used that would result in one fold. In the uncraped state, you can see the brush marks from the woodblock. The illustrations were printed in the woodblock style of Japanese prints. The pigment was laid on the block with a brush and could be feathered out to shade a sky. Then the paper was laid on the block and rubbed with a rubbing pad. In some of the colophons, two printers are named, one for the woodcuts and one for the type. Each was a specialty printing. This cover, the first of Hasegawa's fairy tales, has 12 colors. Usually each would require its own block. The majority of his pictures used five or six colors. The type was printed after the delicate color printing was completed. For the first 18 books, Hasegawa used the same typeface, that is Scotch Roman, a type introduced in England about 1830, a workhorse typeface of the 19th century, especially for children's books. The fitting of the letters within each word is open and more than normal spacing was given between the words to allow for the effects of the creping. Hasegawa solicited Hearn's opinion of the typeface and asked him whether he preferred instead a lighter sample he sent him. Hearn's verdict was to continue with this. It's not very pretty, but it's very clear. Now the sheets were ready for creping. There is a remarkable contemporary account of the creping process. In 1873, a few years after Japan was opened to foreigners, the Prussian government sent two professors to investigate and report on the industries of Japan. In a two-year stay, they covered agriculture, wood products, textiles, and so on. They visited several paper-creping establishments. At first, the Japanese tried to withhold some of the trade secrets. With relentless Germanic thoroughness, the professors sat up all night with a microscope, examining some samples they had bought. They confronted the maker, who confessed, we cannot hide anything from the learned men. This is what the Germans found out. A master pattern of little lines was incised in a flat wooden board. From this, a number of heavy paper molds were made by wetting the heavy paper and forcing it with stiff brushes into the wooden master. The paper molds were interleaved with the sheets to be craped, which had been dampened. A bundle of such interleaved sheets was wound around the central peg of the craping machine and secured tightly from unrolling with canvas strips. I've indicated it in red on my blue sketch this cylinder of the material to be craped. The long board was then brought down very sharply and repeatedly, six to ten times, to compress, just press downward, the whole bundle. The papers were taken out and rearranged nine different times according to a consecutive rotation, 
and each time compressed. It was essential to have the creases go in many different directions to avoid distortion. Why did they crepe? In one of Hasegawa's later books, not one of the fairy tales, there is a printed introduction which states, this little work printed on Hasegawa's unterrible crepe will, it is hoped, be welcomed for the fact that it can be placed in the hands of small children and subjected to an amount of rough usage which no other books can stand. So we see that it was being marketed partly as a kind of rag book. The creping does make the paper pliable, soft, textured, but at the same time strong. It bulks it up to be thicker and heavier than uncraped paper. There was also the curiosity value. It was exotic, part of the whole strangeness of Japan to Western eyes. It enhanced certain printed materials, such as these shorebirds. I've been told that some of the large Japanese prints were offered in creped as well as uncraped form at this time. A number of the fairy tales can be seen in the two forms, creped and uncraped. These two pages were photographed from the same distance and give an idea of the amount of reduction creping made. In these books, it was a shrinkage of 14%. Lafcadio Hearn disliked the shrinkage aspect of the creping. I prefer the old sets of the fairy series on plain paper, not only because the drawings come out better, but because the larger print is better for children's eyes. In the case of my own story, I think that much of the delicate beauty of the charming drawing is lost in the crepe edition. What seems remarkable with all the manipulation that went on is how little distortion there was. Occasionally there is a border that has been skewed out of the square, but the type remains amazingly readable. In fact, it's so clear it seems to sit on top of the paper. I found it very hard to believe at first that the creping was done after the printing. <clears throat> There are a few American books at this time that have crepe paper on the covers. This is a very heavy, almost cardboard weight, no doubt made in Japan and creped mostly from one direction. The titling and decoration was stamped in the United States, the design by Sarah W. Whitman for Houghton Mifflin. It was, it was a light green, it's faded badly, but the unexpected texture lends a great distinction to her design. So think about crepe paper. It's a very interesting subject. <clears throat> now, the binding of these books was very simple. This is one of Lafcadio Hearn's. The printed pages were folded once with the fold toward the front and the open ends at the spine. The cover is the same weight paper as the text. A little strip of silk brocade was pasted between the open ends of the front and back covers to form a spine covering. Holes were punched, two holes in this case, through the book, close to the spine at the top and bottom, and silk threads tied. I must mention that it was at the binding stage, in the gathering of the sheets, that problems occurred that were to plague Lafcadio Hearn's biographers. Perkins, who visited Hasegawa in the 1930s 
and he was working from his home. His shop had been destroyed in the 1923 earthquake, gives this description. In the creping, which took weeks, many sheets were destroyed. The place was a cluttered-up mess. They would discover a pile of sheets in a corner that had been lost and patch them in with later sheets. The printings were all mixed up. Jacob Blank, in the Bibliography of American Literature, declares Hearn's fairy tales an insoluble problem. In some cases, <clears throat> a four-hole tie was used. The result is a neat, sturdy little packet with some of the survival qualities of the limp vellum binding. It opens well with a pleasant limpness. Let's look at some of the pictures in these books. The pictures lead us into a world different from ours, enchanting and extremely detailed. Some of the conceptions are so barbaric, so outside the realm of our own imaginings, yet like this dancing pheasant so convincingly rendered that they become real. The relish with which this badger bites into his fish while the rest of his meal awaits him. The army of crabs on the shore brandishing their spears, taunting the enemy, raising their banner of crossed shears. The whole subject of straw comes into these pictures. Straw or grain hung from a bamboo pole to harvest and articles made of straw. You feel if a rabbit did have a hat, it would look like that, and the woven straw straps to hold his backpack. We get glimpses of interiors, kitchen arrangements. The thing that most impressed the travelers of the 1880s and 90s to Japan was the beauty in every smallest household item, the kitchen utensils, the storage arrangements. This is a sack made of rice straw. It holds barley that's being pounded in the wooden mortar. Here's another mortar scene. This is a magic mortar, and here we get the operatic gestural aspects of the Japanese illustration. He points and she exclaims, we can read them easily. We don't need words. <clears throat> the good and the bad are easy to distinguish. This is a good person. They telegraph their qualities. He's the old man who made dead trees blossom, throwing magic ashes from his basket. The dead tree blows into pink bloom. Nobles on the ground express by their gestures pleasure and awe. Now the bad, envious neighbor tries it with miserable results. No life at all appears on his tree branches. The ashes blow down on the nobles, get in their eyes, and enrage them. He'll be sorry he tried it. 
Here's the climax of a revenge story. The rabbit is smashing down his enemy, the badger. The very curl of his big toe signals his gloating satisfaction. The inside of the front cover usually had a child's toy or a picture especially appealing, such as this little animal cub in a carrying cart or litter. Well, the back cover often had a pure design and was used as a change of pace. Here, a whole flock of flying origami birds, each one different. Japan is an island nation, and as we might expect, many, many of the illustrations portray the coastline, the seashore, the sea itself. Imagine you were in an art class and the teacher asked you to portray a kingdom at the bottom of the sea. In the fairy tales, there are quite a number of fish retainers and serving people. Crab and shrimp waiters hold banquet dishes aloft while water laps at the edge of the stairs. One of the sea stories begins with a wedding. The king of the dragons decides to take a bride and settles on a young dragonette. The procession of fish escorts her in her carrying litter. A mouse gets married and arrives in her carrying litter while inside the servants sweep up the yard. Look here, musculus, can't we have a drink? Yes, all right, plenty of drink now, so keep at work. The mouse servants carry on the wedding preparations. I know what is on the shelf, have a drink? And finally, the bride nears the house. Be still and prepare for the reception. I've not seen such a fine turnout. I congratulate you. Congratulate you on your safe arrival. Very fine indeed. Ride clear inside. This is the only one done with these balloon-style speeches. Now here's a pictorially totally different version. Hasegawa made, that Hasegawa made of the same text some years later. And I want to speak a little here of his reworking of the stories. Over the years, he tinkered with them in a number of ways. He reset the type. He pulled out a paragraph here, altered a few words there. He thought of getting the first six stories rewritten and approached Lafcadio Hearn in 1898. 13 years after they were first published, Hearn advised him that slight improvements might be made, but it would be too costly. Why you should wish to rewrite them, I cannot understand. The stories succeeded well as they are. He reworked the illustrations. A picture luxuriously placed at the bottom of a page like this, he would remove and close up the text 
but nothing was lost, and a similar drawing of the little birds was put on the back cover, which in the original version had a less pertinent picture. An illustration that in the early version occupied the two pages of a double spread was slid together onto a single page, probably making a more effective illustration and saving space. By such means, Hasegawa was able to cut a story that had initially been 16 pages to 14 or even 12 pages. Other evolving changes showed the increasing brightness and harshness of the pigments as aniline dyes replaced the earlier vegetable colorings. As woodcuts wore out, they must be replaced, and sometimes costumes were changed. Examining variants becomes a visual game. What is different in this picture? Here are some of the Lafcadio Hearn books. Hearn's translations were about the last of the fairy tale series. He translated five stories that appeared between 1898 and 1903, and one of them, a manuscript that was lost, came out in 1922. Hearn himself died in 1904. The artwork, the general quality of these books is very high. This is the boy who drew cats. The cover drawing shows a folding album of cat drawings in among water lilies. The story concerns a boy being educated for the priesthood whose real vocation is the sketching of cats. He is rebuked by the priest for drawing in the temple. He means to do right, but the sight of a blank screen impels a stronger force in him to draw cats. Hearn wrote to Hasegawa, I must really say that your artist is a wonderful person. The illustrations are delicious and could not be too warmly praised. In 1931, the Philadelphia publisher McCray and Smith bought from Hasegawa and issued the five little books of Hearn's stories enclosed in a three-piece folder of navy cloth overboards with peg closings. A front label was printed on gold spangled paper. A stencil style end paper with the words made in Japan lined the folder. It made quite a sophisticated package and must have had a wide circulation. I have seen many copies of it. The Goblin Spider is probably the most desirable book in the set. The cover detail shows the effectiveness of creping to such a subject. All in all, the creping in this book added an eerie twilight quality to the illustration. Hearn commented, the pictures are most striking and exceed my expectations. Your artist is very clever and more than clever. This is the climax of the story. Peasant villagers come to help the samurai kill the goblin spider. The picture on the left, which is the earlier of the two, is a perfect example of the framed page format of the Japanese book. 
The strength of the image forces the eye to jump the gutter, creating one picture out of two framed pages. In the later version on the right, although the Japanese frames are retained, the picture is weakened by being broken into two separated scenes. Some of the drama is lost, and certainly the size of the spider reduced. These pages show the lighter, more modern typeface Hasegawa used in his later books. The Old Woman Who Lost Her Dumpling, a folktale of an old woman who makes egg dumplings and chances to drop one down into the land of the demons. If one has an opportunity to hold this book in the hand, turning it to the light, the creping is extremely effective, giving an opalescent, crinkly quality to her wrinkled old face. There is a very amusing letter in the Bibliography of American Literature file at Harvard from Jacob Blanc, the editor, to Percival Perkins, Hearn's bibliographer, dated 1961. After alluding to their often discussed difficulties in pinning down the editions of the fairy tales, Blanc says, I am about to take off on a trip to several libraries for the purpose of checking and rechecking the Japanese publications, including the fairy tales. I approach the task with courage, but suspect that perhaps Hearn's shade will be tempted to do a sixth translation for the series, something called How Jacob Blank Lost His Noodles. <laughs> Chin Chin Kobakama is a slight, pleasant story of an untidy little girl visited in a dream by warning figures who turn out to be the toothpicks she had dropped on her floor and neglected to pick up. The conception of the little figures is very fine and the brush-drawn cover titling beautifully letter-spaced and rendered. Hasegawa put out other books beyond the fairy tales, some craped and some uncraped. Nearly all were larger in format than the fairy tales. This is Residential Rhymes, a witty, ironic book in the style of the Mikado, a humorous view of the foreigner in Japan, the artist, the merchant, the missionary, the globetrotter, and so on, contrasting his self-importance with the modest Japanese native. And he did teaching books directed at children. Uh, this one shows his name on the cover. This is about eight, 1920 with excellent illustrations. In addition, he did ephemeral pieces. He advertised the making of crepe calendars, menus, programs. How did Hasegawa publish and market his books? He listed them often on the inside back cover or advertised the catalog one could send for. He entered international trade fairs and showed his crepe books. Basil Hall Chamberlain mentioned his crepe books as a good purchase under books in his influential book, Things Japanese. Griffith and Farron is by far the most frequently seen English publisher's name uh, as handling his books. An interesting piece of printing, it was originally planned to leave the name reversed out of the blue sky, 
that proved too pale and didn't read strongly enough, so it was overprinted in black. There are six or seven other names of English publishers or dealers found occasionally on his books. He made a great effort to sell in America through Little Brown of Boston, acting on Hearn's recommendation, which might have resulted in large sales, but he was unwilling to agree to their demand for ex exclusivity, denying him any rights to sell in Japan. This copy, used as an advertising premium in Portland, Oregon, is a unique example of such a use. To make particular points, I've been showing snippets of stories, so I want to finish by telling one complete story. This is Urashima the Fisher Boy. The story was first reported as a spoken folk tale in the south of Japan in 733 AD, and it was then already a well-established story. Hasegawa published it as fairy tale number eight in 1886, translated by Basil Hall Chamberlain. It's a very appealing story of the sea and magic, goodness and foolishness. It has been called the Japanese Rip Van Winkle. Urashima was out fishing one day in his boat, seamed together from two pieces of log. He had a straw basket in his boat and wore leggings made of straw. Suddenly, he caught a tortoise. Knowing that a tortoise can live for a thousand years, he returned him tenderly to the waters so that he might enjoy his potentially long life rather than kill him. A fish will do just as well for my dinner. Urashima fell asleep, and as he slept with his oar securely tied, beside him on the waves came a beautiful young woman. She revealed to him that her father was the sea god and that she herself had been the tortoise. They were testing his kindness and sincerity. Now she would fetch him to her father's sea palace, and if he liked, he could marry her and they would live happily together for a thousand years. Lafcadio Hearn had admired this drawing of the sea princess even before he himself thought of translating some fairy tales. He instructed a Japanese artist working for him, make the image as beautiful as the princess in Hasegawa's Urashima and I will pay you well. Urashima took one oar and she the other. They rowed and rowed till they reached the sea god's palace where he lived and ruled as king over all the tortoises and fishes and creatures of the sea. After landing on the shore, she led him from the beach toward the entrance of the sea palace. Bowing respectfully, the fish of higher degree, dressed in red and white robes, inclined their heads. Others knelt on the sand. The fish in red robes are only three-eighths of an inch high before creping. For three years, they lived very happily, feasting on the broad verandas, 
waited on by sea creatures. Then Orishima began to long for the sight of his brothers and sisters, his parents, and his own village. He would stay a short time, he promised, and then return. His wife was uneasy and feared misfortune, yet she could sympathize with his longing. She gave him a box that he must promise to keep always with him, but never open. Oh, those boxes of fairyland. If he opened it, he would never be able to return. Urashima rode in his boat a long way and finally reached the shore of his own country. Everything looked different. The mountain was still there, but its trees had been cut down. The brook that was beside his house still ran, but there was no house. He asked a passerby where Urashima's cottage had been moved to. Urashima? Four hundred years ago, Urashima was drowned while he was out fishing. Many years ago, his brother's grandchildren died, and the cottage fell to pieces. The truth flashed on him that he had been living in fairyland, where time moved differently. He wanted to hurry back to his wife and the sea palace. But which was the way? By himself, he had no idea how to get there. In his distress, he looked at the box. Perhaps if he opened it, it would tell him. He opened the box and out flew mortality and age and death. His hair grew white, his face got wrinkled, his back bent, his breath stopped. And so, because he had been foolish and disobeyed, Urashima had to die. But on the back cover, with its little silk the little dancing lights set on the waves carry the story into immortality. To sum up, there is much more to these little craped books than at first appears. They are more than rag books for children or tourist souvenirs. They reflect a rare moment in history. Just as certain rocks carry in their formation the imprint of their making, so the crepe fairy books show in their format and layout the forcible joining together of the Victorian storybook and the last of feudal Japan.